Well, good morning. It's, thank you for the invitation to bring God's Word to you this Lord's Day. This is the, the third time that I've been with you over the last couple of years. Uh, the first time was recorded, the second time in person, but with a couple of meters between each seat. And finally, praise the Lord, I'm able to enjoy the full HBC experience. I bring blessings and best wishes from the church family at Peterhead Baptist Church and extend a warm invitation to anyone who finds themselves in the Northeast to join us for worship and fellowship together. But right now, we are going to turn to the Word of God and continue in this series in John's Gospel. Last time, uh, we thought on Jesus' disciples meeting him literally on the Sea of Galilee, and we pick up the narrative the following morning uh, with all of them having landed on the northwestern shore as the Lord journeys toward the synagogue in Capernaum and makes this wonderful statement, I am the bread of life. It's quite a long reading, but rest assured it is the most authoritative and most perfect part of our service when we read from God's Word. So I invite you to join with me if you have a Bible with you. It's John chapter 6, and we're beginning at verse 22. This is the Word of God. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there, and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but that they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you're looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what sign will you then give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. At this the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. 
I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. Amen. May God add His blessing to this reading from His Word. Let's just ask His help before we look at some of these verses in a bit more detail. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the gift of Your Word and for every encouragement and every challenge that we find in these pages. And we ask this morning for the ministry of Your Holy Spirit as we consider these verses together. Speak powerfully to us, we pray. Comfort us with the knowledge of Your love and provision. Motivate us in our service to You, For without your involvement, however earnest our work, it will achieve nothing for your kingdom. May the words from this humble servant's mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. For your blessing and for your glory we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm a man of simple pleasures. When I'm in the supermarket on payday, filling my trolley with a month's supplies, I will sometimes spoil myself and buy a plain loaf. Ruth is on gluten-free bread, and if you've ever tasted that, then I invite you to pray for her affliction. And Phoebe and Judah like the toasty and the orange wrapper, so the majority of the time our bread bin has a feel of being sponsored by Warburton's. But for me, nothing beats a fresh plain loaf. When the bread is soft and the crusts are hard, you know that squeaky way sometimes that the crusts go, that with just a few rashers of bacon laid on the top, perfection as we are able to get in this fallen, sinful world. But what of the bread of life? For me, bread is either the mundane contents of the kids' packed lunchbox, or it's a payday treat. But for the Jewish community in Jesus' time, their understanding of bread gave it a much more significant place in their religious history and teaching. In Proverbs 9 and verse 5, we read the divine wisdom of God saying, come, eat my food and drink the wine I have mixed. And that word food uh, and uh, sorry, I've just completely flummoxed myself by trying to advance. No, I've, what, what am I doing? What am I doing wrong? It's not, you. it's not me. Good, that's fine. That's all I needed to hear. Brilliant. <laughs> Let's go back to Proverbs 9 and verse 5, shall we? We read of the divine wisdom of God saying, Come, eat my food and drink the wine I have mixed. And that word food, when literally translated from Hebrew, means bread. And the religious leaders of the time connected that wisdom, which is personified in Proverbs 9, with the Torah, the book of Moses, the first five books of our Old Testaments. As a result, they referred to the Torah metaphorically as bread. But as much a part of Jewish teaching as this was, it was superseded by another, one which the crowd that followed the Lord in these verses would have been even more conscious of than normal when we take into account the statement of verse 4 in this chapter back over the page, the Jewish Passover feast was near. 
The entire Jewish community were celebrating their rescue from slavery in Egypt, rejoicing in their leading from the promised land, to the promised land rather, and commemorating the supernatural nourishment that they received between Egypt and Canaan, nourishment which came in the shape of manna from heaven. Jewish understanding was of a storehouse of this divine food in heaven, which had been opened to feed the Israelites as they were led through the desert, and which would be opened again one day in the future when the promised Messiah would come to them. Just as Moses, the first Redeemer, called down this bread, so too would the latter Redeemer, the Holy One of God. Jesus has just fed 5,000 people with two fish and five small barley loaves. A multitude of followers have crossed the Sea of Galilee to catch up with Him because they have seen the parallels between the miraculous feeding in the wilderness in the Exodus and the miraculous feeding of the 5,000. But the motive behind their pursuit of Jesus is all wrong, and Jesus challenges them on it. We see there in verse 26, He says, Jesus answers, very truly I tell you, you are looking for Me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. These people are tactless and grasping. Their emphasis is on their own material gain. The important factor for them is a physical meal which satisfies the pangs of hunger in their stomachs for a short while. They've observed Jesus' miraculous provision. The opening section from verses 22 to 25 suggests that they have picked up on the miraculous crossing of the lake. They have witnessed the wonders then of Jesus' creative power and His authority over the created world but they do not see what all of this means. So the Lord leads them. He exhorts them to turn their eyes away from the fleeting benefits of a free meal and onto the lasting proceeds of a right relationship with Him. Beginning at verse 27, Jesus says, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Then they asked Him, What must we do to do the works God requires? Notice how their response misses the Lord's point. They are focused on that Torah understanding of bread, and they want to know what they have to do, what work they need to accomplish that will earn God's pleasure and the eternal life that it brings. They miss what Jesus has said in verse 26 about the, the, sorry, 27 about the gift that comes with the Son of Man. But Jesus sweeps away their misconceptions in the next verse when He tells them, The work of God is this, to believe in the one He has sent. Now the penny drops. Now the connection is made. Now they start to join together what they have observed the day before and what Jesus is saying now. And when they do that, the picnic of yesterday and the proclamation of today make much more sense as two parts of this one statement, a statement in which this man Jesus makes His claim to be the Son of Man, and applies this title which combines humanity and humility with Old Testament prophecies about rule and authority to Himself. Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah, the anointed and holy one of God. He has opened the heavenly storehouse. He has fed the crowd with bread that He has taken from it, demonstrating in word and deed who it is that they walk with along the road to Capernaum. And contrary to what they expect, The only effort, the only energy they need to expend in order to take hold of every blessing and benefit of a relationship with Him is to believe. There are no works. There are no merits that will build up heavenly wealth. There is only one thing that they need. The currency of life and salvation is faith. 
not that this makes much of an impression on this audience. For what is their immediate response to this magnificent revelation? They ask what Jesus will do for them. They ask him for a miracle, for a sign. On the face of it, it looks as though some people are never happy that feeding 5,000 with half a packed lunch just isn't good enough for some folk. But remember the context for these people at this moment. The anointed one of God, promised by God the Father himself, foretold through the prophecies of the Old Testament, would be a figure even greater than that of Moses. And if Moses was able to get the heavenly bread bin opened and feed the whole nation of Israelites in the desert for a full 40-year period, then surely the Messiah will be capable of even more. Feeding 5,000 men and their wives and children is impressive, but it's a one-off. And they tasted barley bread when they chewed through his provision. It will take a little bit more for them to accept his claim. It will take manna. This is what first century Judaism expected of the Messiah. They expected the renewal of this particular miracle at his hands. They expected a permanent supply of it. But those expectations are tragically worldly. And so they miss the spiritual significance of what it is that Jesus is trying to say here. Now, these people are Jews. They have a a religious history, and they've heard the, the metaphors and analogies of their spiritual leaders relating to the Torah and the manna. And when they think of bread in a religious context, it's the, the wisdom, the nourishment, the life-sustaining and life-affirming presence of God that comes to mind. But what they don't realize is that the one that they are listening to is the true bread from heaven. They are listening to the bread of God who brings all these same things. The Messiah, the last redeemer, the ultimate revealer, whatever name from a whole bundle that they choose to use for the anointed one of the Lord, this is who they are in the presence of, and this is who is instructing them. Here is the personification of wisdom. Here is the sustaining presence of God. He is right there, and He is right here. Verse 35. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Manna from heaven withered and perished. The people who it sustained also perished. The ceremonial and sacrificial elements of the law of Moses were for a finite time. But the one who all of these things point to will never perish. Why? Because he's God. This is the first of seven statements in uh, John's gospel that Jesus will make that explicitly reveal his divine character and personality. Look out for each one as you work your way through this book together. They all incorporate the name that God shared with Moses from the burning bush. You remember Exodus 3 verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. And using these same words to identify himself as the true bread of God, Jesus reveals at the same time that he is God. The longing of this crowd, who don't appreciate the weight and significance of the situation they find themselves in, is to twist the messianic mission and compress it down to their fantasy of what he will do for them. But the bread of life is so much more than they think. So Jesus doesn't give them the sign that they demand. He doesn't indulge them by dancing to their tune because what they want is an experience. They want something fleeting that is going to impact on their financial or political situation or both in the here and now. 
This crowd have been running after Jesus because they want to appoint him as king so he will overthrow the Romans and abolish their oppressive taxation policies. Now they want him to provide them with free food that will never run out so that they no longer need to work to feed their families. Their longing for Jesus is because he can satisfy their desires, all of which are greedy and selfish and of this earth. Their curiosity about him is all about what they want. With this majestic statement, Jesus is more concerned about the provision of what they need. The true bread that will nourish their spiritual lives. The true bread that will bestow life itself. Coming to Him satisfies our hunger and our thirst, not our bodily request for food, but our need for God. Look again at what Jesus says in verse 35. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Now, this doesn't mean that we only need one nibble and then we don't need to think about it ever again. It doesn't mean that we don't have to be feeding from this bread for the the rest of our lives, both here on this earth and beyond. But what it does mean is that the yawning emptiness of our souls that we carry to Him in our first encounter with Him is filled. Our spiritual hunger is met when we come to Jesus in a way that it never needs to be met again because we will never be so empty again because we have the bread of life that satisfies us. The 1981 film Excalibur, chronicling the saga of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, contains a scene that I often refer to in my own testimony, the scene where an aging and apathetic Arthur is presented with the Holy Grail, and after he reluctantly drinks from the chalice, he immediately turns to Sir Percival and says, I did not know how empty was my soul until it was filled. For me, it's the quote of the film, because it refers so perfectly to the approach of everyone and anyone to Jesus, made aware of their hunger, made aware of their thirst, made aware of their emptiness for the first time, they come and the Lord satisfies. Have you come to the Lord or are you hungry this morning? Do you thirst for the grace and the forgiveness that only Jesus has for you? Do you have a a longing for a relationship with God that the Holy Spirit has awakened within you? Are you even aware that you have that need today? If the answer to any of these is yes, then know that Jesus Christ, the bread of life, satisfies. Without Jesus, the sins we have committed are our own to bear. The punishment for all our rebellion against God lands on our heads, and we cannot bear that punishment because that punishment is spiritual death. But when we come to Jesus Christ and confess Him as Lord and Savior, then we do not bear the penalty of all the things that we have done to displease God anymore. We are washed clean. We are sinless in the eyes of the Lord because our punishment has been served by Jesus on a cross of wood at Golgotha. Revelation 7 and verse 16 describes that multitude in heaven whose robes have been washed and purified in the blood of the Lamb. And what does it tell us about them? Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. And all because He is the answer to spiritual starvation, to emptiness of the soul. Jesus is the bread of life. Well, let's think for a few moments on the origin of this bread and who it is that gives it to us. I'll ask you to move on to the next title, so don't press any buttons. 
In asking this question, we again find the misunderstanding of the crowd dreadfully apparent in this passage. For in that moment when they demand the next sign from the Lord, their own confusion over the origin of manna means that they miss the point as to where Jesus has come from and ultimately who it is that sends him to us. Because they attribute the miraculous provision of food at the Exodus to the power of Moses himself. Verse 30. What sign will you then give? Sorry, what sign then will you give um, that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Doesn't it annoy you when people give credit to the wrong person? People tell me I should let this go because it's going back a bit now, but I must confess it used to rub me up the wrong way when people in the media would go on and on and on and on about how Ivan Lendl was the difference between Andy Murray being a Grand Slam tennis champion and an also-ran. Yes, tactics are important. Yes, preparation is essential, but a coach can only do so much. Every time we saw Andy scampering forward to pick up an opponent's drop shot, every time we saw him chasing down a lost cause into uh, the corners of the court and picking up vital points in the process, that wasn't the work of the coach. That was the player. Andy Murray's three major wins are his own achievement, not his coach's. After all, doesn't the Wimbledon men's trophy say on it these words, All England Lawn Tennis Club, single-handed championship of the world. Jesus was no different, although his exasperation is a little bit more righteous than mine, and that he didn't want to see the credit for the miraculous feeding of the Israelites in the wilderness going to the wrong person. And he says in verse 32, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father. Jesus starts with that strong, forceful opening to the sentence, very truly I tell you, in order to grab their attention. It's like saying, hey, enough, enough with the Moses worship. The bread of heaven that your forefathers ate in the desert came from God. Just as every good and perfect gift comes from God, so did this manna. If he knew their scriptures as well as they thought they did, they would be aware of this, having read Exodus 16 and verse 4, where it says, then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. If they'd feasted on the Torah with the same energy that they're pursuing another free meal here, they would know that Moses didn't aim to take credit for himself either when he addresses the multitude four verses later in that chapter. Moses also said, you will know that it is the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning. God is the provider. God is the source and the donor of the manna. God is the origin of the bread that the Israelites ate, and that bread was only a foretaste of the true bread of heaven. Back to John 6, reading from verse 32. It is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Just as with the manna, the origin of the true bread is heaven, and the person who gifts it to us is God. And he gives it to us for a reason. The purpose of this supernaturally given bread is the same as the manna he gave by supernatural means. It is given so that we may live. Because without it, without him, we would be lost and without hope. We would be spiritually dead. Because without faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we're not heading for eternity in God's presence. Without believing that he is God come in flesh, we are headed for destruction. Jesus has been sent to give those who would follow him life instead. And in this same book of the Bible, we find the motive behind this gift. For God so loved the world 
that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. We have this bread because God loves us enough to give it to us. Not because we deserved it, not because we have earned it, not because we could ever earn it, but because he loves us and because his love is greater than our wrongdoing. Through his grace, his mercy, and his love comes our life, life that we can be confident in our possession of. It's a privilege to be with you this morning, brothers and sisters, but as I stand here, I don't know your circumstances and your struggles. I don't know what you're facing or working through right now. But if there are any of you here this morning who are feeling lacking in value, if there are anyone here who are feeling worthless or insignificant or empty, then I implore you to be encouraged by these words and this truth. I pray that you will see just how special and appreciated and precious that you really are in the eyes of the one who made you, the one who knows everything about you and who sent his son to die for you. For God so loved the world that he sent the bread of life who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Which takes us nicely into our third question, who is this bread for? The use of the word world might lead us to think that everyone comes under this banner and everyone will be saved by Christ's sacrifice. But that's not an accurate understanding. The use of world in John's conversation with the Jews indicates that Jesus' mission applies to those outside their race. It means that they cannot count on their one special position as God's own people to save them anymore. The lost are the lost, whether they are of Jewish heritage or Gentile heritage, there will be no distinction. And whoever turns to Jesus, regardless of background, will have the life that he promises. The result of this is that there will be men and women of Israelite ethnicity who will not have eternal life in heaven. And there will be others with no knowledge or experience or, uh, or, or, or time in the synagogue who will come to faith and who will be raised to life by the Lord. So salvation is open to all backgrounds, but is it open to all people? Reading from verse 37. <clears throat> all those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. Verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Why do I always end up with passages that talk about predestination when I preach at Hamilton Baptist? Maybe it's something to do with my Reformed theological background, or maybe it's my own fault because I changed the date I was coming this time. But predestination is a controversial doctrine of Christian theology, the idea that it is God who chooses in advance those who will become Christians, and the idea that we don't really have the freedom to choose. It's a sticking point for many who shun Calvinism. And we don't have to look too far to find committed and Bible-rooted brothers and sisters who believe that such a system is unfair and misrepresents God's love. And I can imagine I might be having a conversation with one or two of them at the door after this sermon. But of course, if we want to go down the route of fairness, then we can always ask who does deserve a place in heaven on their own merit, for none of us do. So if God agrees to apply a system of real fairness for humankind, then heaven will be empty of human souls. But he doesn't. He applies a system of mercy and of grace, and Jesus tells us here how it works. 
God draws souls to Christ. The Holy Spirit penetrates the darkness of our sinful hearts and awakens our ability to see who Jesus is. It can't really work any other way because outside of Christ we are content in our sin. Coming to God is never an independently good idea in the hearts and minds of fallen people. When we are dead in our transgressions, we are like any other lifeless organism and are incapable of doing anything toward our own rescue. And so it must be God who takes the initiative. And those that the Father has given to the Son, He will not let go. He will keep us. He will protect us, and nothing will separate us from His grip. In the words of the song, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck us from His hand. And as sure as night follows day, He will raise us up at the last, and we will have life everlasting through Him. This is where our confidence in eternal life comes from, not in our ability to cling to the Scriptures, not in our our vigor in praise and in prayer, but in the strength of the Son of God who keeps us in His hand. That phrase in verse 37, whoever comes to me, I will never drive away, emphasizes this truth, for the verb translated as drives away speaks of something that is already within being cast out. Some commentators have recommended an alternative translation of that sentence to say, whoever comes to me, I will certainly preserve, which crystallizes this understanding. Those whom the Father has set aside, those whom the Father has drawn will never be separated from His Son. And to emphasize the point already made, if you are here this morning and you know the Lord, how precious and special does that make you feel? Because every child of God who has ever been And every child of God who is yet to come is already known to Him. But they are not known to us. And for this reason, we cannot be lackadaisical in our approach to evangelism. We can't take these verses as an excuse to sit back and relax and let God draw the elect to His side by supernatural means without making use of the human beings He has called into partnership for the work of His kingdom. That's you and me. Yes, he says here that the Father draws those who will believe, but he doesn't say that he will do it independently of his church. After all, doesn't Jesus also tell us to go and to make disciples of all nations, to teach them to obey everything that he commanded us? Our role in obedience to him is to bring the good news to those who are lost. Whether each individual we speak to will come to faith or not is irrelevant to our commission. It's not the results that we will be judged on. It's the activity. And how amazing is it to think that God could be using even us to move one of His chosen children closer to the point where they confess their faith and give their heart to Jesus. Maybe there's some of you here this morning who are not Christians. Maybe there are some people who are joining us on the live stream who have never come to faith in the Lord. How does this make you feel? Do you feel excluded because you don't consider yourself to be one of these elect people, one of God's chosen children? Could the fact that you're sitting in a church or have felt led to click on to church online be an indicator that you are being drawn by the Father? Could the Holy Spirit, in fact, be working in your heart right now and you don't even know it yet? What will you do with this bread? What should we all do with this bread? Jesus says in verse 54, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise them up at the last day. And in verse 56, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. It seems pretty clear cut what we all must do. We are to eat his flesh 
and we are to drink his blood. Now, before we all get a little squeamish, and before we fall into the same trap that the Jews listening to Jesus do, let's be clear that this is a metaphorical statement. For one thing, the drinking of blood was forbidden in the Old Testament law, and so Jesus' perfect adherence to his Father's commands would fall down if he were to literally encourage vampirism. What the Lord is telling his audience is that they must take Christ into their inmost being to take hold of the gift of everlasting life and glory. The word we have translated as eat in this verse is most often used in a context of noisily feeding. Maybe a modern-day equivalent would be munch or chomp. It conveys the sense of eating with enjoyment. We did a, a day of prayer and fasting for the church last year, and we brought our abstinence to an end together with communion, followed by bacon rolls on the second morning. There's nothing quite like the enjoyment of that first bite when you're ravenous. Would have been better if it was plain bread sandwiches, obviously. But even so, there was an awful lot of chomping and munching going on that morning as we ate with enjoyment and delight and satisfied the emptiness that had grown over the past 24 hours. Well, how do we do this with the Lord? Well, let's remember what he said in verse 35. Let's remember the metaphor that he established in that great I am statement. He said, whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus is telling us that our hunger is taken away by coming to Him, that our thirst is taken away, taken away rather, by believing in Him. This is how we eat until our spiritual hunger is satisfied. That is how we drink until our spiritual thirst is quenched. This is what we are to, to, to do with the bread of life. Come to Him and believe. The challenge is clear for anyone here this morning who does not know the Lord. So what will you do with this bread? Maybe you're not a Christian, but are being drawn to Christ's side by the Father through the work of the Holy Spirit. Maybe you're feeling the pull to the Lord. Maybe you come along Sunday by Sunday, but you're holding something back and are not freely eating this bread. What will you do? I don't want to cut across the bows of the preacher who will bring the next passage to you, but I'm going to because the two responses to this challenge are found in the next few verses. For there is a crowd who say, this is a hard teaching, who can accept it? And they walk away from Jesus. And there is an apostle who says to the Lord, you have the words of eternal life. Which group will you take your place in? Christian, you have come. You have believed. You have eaten and you have drunk and you have everlasting life because he will not let you go. Will you keep that truth to yourself? Will you keep that joy in-house? Or will you share? And will you involve yourself in the work of God as He calls His future children? Let's consider our responses to these challenges as we prepare to gather around the Lord's table. As we remember through those symbols of His flesh and blood that we have the promise of eternal life through His sacrifice on the cross. But before we do that, we're going to sing, O, oh, to see the dawn. And before we do that, we're going to pray. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy and your love for each one of us. And we thank you for your Son, the bread of life. For through him, we are cleansed and made perfect in your sight. Through him, our sins are paid for, and we look forward to taking our place by your side in heaven because of his atoning sacrifice. Lord, all of this was possible because like the manna in the wilderness, you sent him to us that we would no longer be spiritually dead, but would have life everlasting. Father, we ask that you would use us to bring this bread to those who you are drawing to your side, 
Give us the opportunities and give us the words to speak. All of these things we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.